Well, I want to first let you guys know about several things right now. The uh, person that Kyle and I wanted to win presidency for the SBC did not win, but a couple good things happened, and I'm excited about those good things, amen. Number one, a resolution passed, resolution two passed, and it basically takes a stand, not in name against CRT, but against the tenets of CRT where they would try to say racism is bred into a certain ethnic group, which is a lie and not what the gospel teaches. Racism is a sin and sin is bred into every human being, amen? And they stood on this by the inerrancy of scripture, amen? That's the resolution starts with the title, the sufficiency of scripture and racial reconciliation, okay? So I was excited that one passed, and are you drum roll, please? Yeah, the resolution for Southern Baptists to stand and proclaim that the abolition of abortion should take place passed as well. So excited about that! I'm so excited about that. Uh, several friends of mine were there presenting the bill and I, or the resolution, and I'm really, really, really happy it passed. Amen. Um, tonight I want to talk not about Genesis chapter 10. Okay, I could have, but I really don't think we need to do Genesis 10 tonight. I really, 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 really want to do a discussion, a, a message, and I may get very animated in this message, so you'll have to forgive me, okay? But I think it's vitally important because right now the culture is telling us one thing and the Bible is telling us another thing, amen? That the culture says there's no difference between men and women. There's nothing biological different. That, that biological thing, it doesn't matter, okay? But the Bible says otherwise. Uh, the, the culture teaches that marriage is just, just another agreement, and it's not really necessary, but the Bible teaches something different. Amen? Uh, the, 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 the culture teaches there's no order in structure in life, in marriage, or in uh, the home, or in church. There's no structure at all, but the Bible says something else. Amen? Uh, the, the culture says that uh, sexuality is absolutely separate uh, issue than marriage, and, and we shouldn't be saying anything about it anyway. And as quote-unquote, and I'm using air quotes because these people who claim to be Christians say that the Bible doesn't speak about homosexuality, transgenderism, or any of it. But it does. Amen. The problem is... They don't like that it talks about it. And since it does speak about these different things, what they do, so-called Christians, they try to start going, well, the Bible doesn't really mean this, and the Bible doesn't really mean that. And all of a sudden, the Bible is not sufficient for us to know what marriage is, to know what gender is, to know what order in the home or order in church is. Or, for that matter, it doesn't give us enough information to tell us what sexuality is. And all that stems from inerrancy. It, either the Bible says what it says or it doesn't. The minute that the Bible doesn't mean what it says, they are attacking the 
inerrancy of scripture. That's exactly what's happening. The minute that they say uh, words to this effect, the Bible doesn't teach that the man is the head of his home, even though that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't teach that there's men and women. Yes, that's exactly what it teaches. The Bible doesn't teach monogamy, that we're supposed to be one man and one woman in a single relationship. That is exactly what the Bible teaches. That is exactly what Scripture teaches. That's exactly what Christ taught. Amen? The minute they say these things, what they're saying is, the Bible's not enough. The Bible is incomplete. It doesn't give me enough information to make this decision. Or our translation is wrong and we need to get it right. No, that's not what's going on. What's going on is you found a sin that you like and rather than capitulate to the Bible and repent and believe the gospel, you decide that you're going to try to make the Bible fit what you think and what you believe. Amen? We call that eisegesis. It's reading your own uh, thoughts into scripture. Amen? I won't call it exegesis because if they actually exegete the passage, they would know that the Bible says exactly what it says. But since they don't do exegesis, they have to do eisegesis where they have their own thoughts and their own already preconceived interpretation and they put it into scripture. Amen? So tonight we're going to talk about inerrancy, okay? And we're going to talk about it at length. I may talk about it at nauseum, okay? But I think it's absolutely necessary. And I know there's only a few of us in here tonight, but there's people watching on Facebook and there's people that's going to listen to this podcast and they need to hear this, amen? We need to hear it. We need to be reminded that the Bible is sufficient. It is absolutely perfect, inerrant, infallible. It is our rule for life, faith, and practice. Amen? So I'm going to start with a few, uh, uh, first with a Bible verse, okay? Let's, let's start with our Bible verse, and, and Kyle probably already knows where I'm going. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to start at verse 10. Okay, because I like context. Second Timothy chapter three, starting at verse ten. You who, uh, excuse me, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings that happened to me at Antioch. Now, I just want to stop right here for every preacher of the gospel and for every Christian who pretends like they have some kind of persecution going on in their life. If none of that stuff's happened to you, you're not really living your life for God enough, okay? You need to be out there, out loud, living your life for Christ to where people are getting annoyed with the fact that you're a Christian, okay? It should offend people. It should make people upset. Why do I say that? Because you're not going to want to do what they're doing. You're not going to want to do the things that they want you to do. You're not going to talk or say the things they want you to say. Because your perspective is not built on this world. It is built on the word of God. Amen? Now watch this. At Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet 
From all of them, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're not living a godly life, you won't be persecuted. That's what it's saying. But if you do, if you are living a life of godliness, people will talk about you. People will say all manner of things because you're not living like everybody else. Now watch this. <laughs> Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will, per will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Ain't we living in the middle of that? Where, uh, where, uh, where, how does it word it? I want to get it right. While evil people. Now he's not talking about outside the church. He's talking about in the church. You realize this is written to Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus. He's telling him evil people and imposters. We'll go from bad to worse. Amen? They don't want to hear the truth. Matter of fact, when you say homosexuality is a sin and we should, we should, we should not condone it, we should not uh, coddle people and tell them it's okay, no, we should tell them the truth. When you do that, they call you unloving, unkind, they call you a Pharisee, they call you a, 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 a oh, I don't know, unchristian. Un because it's more Christian, in their opinion, to allow people to go ahead and sin rather than confront them with the truth of God's word. Somehow, the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. And all the other 11 doesn't matter. Or all the other 10 don't matter, right? Like, murder is okay, homosexuality is okay. No, none of that's okay, right? Now, if we're caught in a fault and we have trouble with sin, what do we do? What do we do, Mike? What if I have sin in my life and I'm a Christian, Mike? What do I do? Repent! Right? Repent! Get up and keep going, right? Now, with that being said, I can't look at Mike and go, your sin's okay. Because that's not what the Word of God says. Amen? We cannot do that. But as for you, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings or the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the point. All scripture is God-breathed, amen? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. I'm going to stop right here. This, this passage says that the word of God is absolutely Totally, 100%, unequivocally, God breathed. Every word, every jot, every tittle of scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. It's useful for teaching, for correcting, for training, for reproof that the man of God may be fully equipped, fully furnished, one translation says, for every good work. 
Now, this is what the modern church teaches you. Yeah, the word of God's great, but you, you need the spirit. You do need the spirit, but that doesn't change the word of God being absolutely God-breathed and useful for my teaching, for my reproof, for my correction, for my training, that I will be fully equipped for every good work. Scripture is enough. Why, why won't the Spirit teach anything besides this? Because the Spirit doesn't come to teach His own new, new story. He comes to remind us what Jesus taught. And He comes to remind us what the Father had said. Amen? And I don't know if you get it, but everything in the Old Testament was all God. Everything in the New Testament is all God. So if God said all of it, that's what the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to us. The Word of God. Period. Amen? Now I want to I wanna go to, we got that pulled up. Now this, this, what I'm about to read to you, and if you can't see it on the Facebook, there is a, uh, a, a portion of the Baptist faith and message that's on the screen, and we're about to read it. It's the very first paragraph of the Baptist faith and message, and it reads like this. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It, is re it reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who himself is the focus of divine revelation. This is absolutely true. The Bible, I love this, this, this part of it. It's my favorite part. It says, therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, or religious opinions should be tried. That's the point that we're talking about tonight. Religious opinions about the Bible are not separate from the scriptures. I can't just make up a new thing and then say, well, here, you know, here's kind of how the Bible says it. No, either the Bible teaches it or the Bible doesn't teach it. Amen. And those things that are expressly stated, we need to follow wholeheartedly. Amen. I want to read to you another uh, portion of the Baptist uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession says this the Holy Scriptures uh, the Holy Scripture is the only I want you to note this the only sufficient certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge faith and obedience all the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness wisdom 
and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that he uh, the, and to declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better persevering and propagation of the truth and for more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and all of the world to commit the same holy unto writing which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people be now ceased. In other words, the canon of scripture is closed. Amen? We have everything we need to know how to live our life godly for Christ. Amen? I got one more. I'm not done. John MacArthur and the people that wrote the NASB MacArthur Study Bible say this about the Holy Scriptures. We teach that the Bible is the written revelation of God to man. And thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary inspired Equal, uh, equal in all parts word of God, the plenary word of God. We teach that the word of God is an objective personal revelation ver uh, verbally inspired in every word 2 Timothy 3.16 absolutely inerrant in the original documents infallible and God breathed. We teach the literal, grammatical historical interpretation of scripture which affirms the belief that the open, from the opening chapters of Genesis present the creation in six literal days. We teach that the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And they give verses for this. Matthew 5, 8, Matthew 24, 35, John 10, 35, John 16, 12, 13, John 17, 17, 1 Corinthians 2, 13, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, Hebrews 4, 12, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. We teach that God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Without error in the whole or in part, we teach that whereas there may be several applications of any passage of scripture, there is but one true interpretation. The meaning of scripture is to be found only diligently, only as one diligently applies the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. John 7, 17, John 16, 12 through 15, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 15, and 1 John 2 and 20. It is the responsibility of the believer to ascertain carefully the true intent and meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application 
is binding on all generations, yet the truth of the scripture stands in judgment against men. Never do men stand in judgment of scripture. Never. This is truth. This is exactly, this is exactly what scripture teaches about itself. God's word is without error. God's word is useful for all situations of my life. And God's word teaches me how to live my life in Christ, godly, in this present age. Amen? Now, I want to go back to 2 Timothy 3, because we're going to read that verse again and really get it down into us, okay? Did I say 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy? 2 Timothy, okay. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. This is absolute truth. You want to be fully equipped for every good work? The Word of God gives you the outline, gives you the details. Amen. I want to bring out some Bible verses now so we can go and look this up, okay? So you don't think that Pastor Kevin's just uh, throwing you throwing you a, a, a little bit of a bone here and saying, oh, you know, all Scripture, but it ain't really all Scripture. Go with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30. <laughs> Psalm chapter 30. If I could get there without overturning my pages here. Psalm 30. Verse 5. But we can start at verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up. And have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O oh Lord, my God, I cried to you for your help and you healed me. O oh Lord, you have brought me up, my soul from Shiloh. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you, his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for a night. But a shout comes in the morning. A shout of joy comes in the morning. I don't know why I wrote that one down, but I'm going to assume that it was good. What's yours say right there, Kyle? Read it to me. Verse 5. Read verse 5. I think I meant 33. Go to 33. That isn't the one I want, I'm sure of it. No, four. Thirty-three, four. Look at that. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all of his works are done in faithfulness. Now, what does that mean? The word of the Lord is upright. That means the word of the Lord is trustworthy and true. It's exactly what the Baptist faith and message said, right? We know that all scripture, right? Therefore, all scripture is totally trustworthy and true. Where did they get that from? Well, look right there. I bet Psalm 130 is in there somewhere or Psalm 133. 
And if it ain't, it ought to be. Because I found it. Amen? They got some verses in there that we will go over. Now watch this. Go with me, if you will, to Psalm 19. Not 119, 19. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do people want to be wise? Then get in the word of God. Amen. Do you want an accurate, accurate report of life? That the word of God is not wrong here and wrong there. It's perfect. Amen. Without error. That's what we got in the Baptist faith and message. That's what we read from John MacArthur. That's what we read from the 1689 confession. But the word of God is without error. It's perfect, infallible. Amen? Not only is it infallible, but it's useful in every situation. Amen? Now go with me, if you will, to Psalm 119. We'll go there. Psalm 119. Now, this psalm is all about what, Kyle? Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, right? Or is it just the longest psalm? Probably just the longest psalm. Now, look at this. Psalm 119 is all about God's Word. Amen? We could start from the very beginning and read the whole thing. I will not do that. <laughs> but I will read verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained their precepts that we should keep them diligently. You have ordained your precepts. What's his precepts? His words. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 89. Go to Psalm 119, verse 89. Psalm 119, verse 89 says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. I want to stop right here. Because so many people act like God's word is just up for debate. Like, well, you, that's what you say. No, right here it says his word is settled in heaven. So everything God has ever said. What did Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Amen? Meaning once they're spoken, it's done. It is settled in heaven, just like this verse says. Amen? Let me tell you one thing. God has settled in heaven gender. Come on. Let's get an amen on that. God has settled in heaven what marriage is. God has settled in heaven the order of the family and the order of the church. God has settled in heaven sexuality. It's settled. 
It's not up for debate. It's not up for vote. Amen? Psalm 119, verse 160. Some of your word is truth. I want you to get that. What's the King James say right there in verse 160, Mike? Go ahead and read it to me. Oh, okay. Well, you can read it out of Judy's Bible. I don't care. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. She got NIV, right? All your righteous laws are eternal. Amen? So when God said... That it's an abomination for a man to lie with another man as he lies with a woman. This was eternal. Amen. Go ahead, read it out of there, Mike. Endures forever. Man. I love the way the NASB says it. The sum. Of your words, the entirety, the entirety of his words, the entirety of his words is true. So, how much of the Bible is true? Every bit of it. How much of it is with error? Not one bit of it. Not one single shred of evidence that the Bible is untrue. That's what it means to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. It means you believe that every single part of the Bible is absolutely true, absolutely useful for your life. Amen? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to get to some good stuff here in a minute, Kyle, that will really knock you. It'll get you excited. If it doesn't, we need to, like, hook up a blood pressure cup on you or something. Okay? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. This is the inerrancy of Scripture. Go with me, if you will, to Numbers. I'm going to make you flip back to Numbers, okay? I'm sorry. I, I was trying to go in order, but I must have wrote this one out of order right there, okay? So go with me to Numbers. If you don't know where Numbers is, it's uh, right after Leviticus. Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. Let me make sure I got it right. Verse 19. Numbers 23, verse 19. Now here's a good one. I want you to get this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has said, and he will not, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Amen. Why do we even have faith that Jesus Christ is coming back again? Why? Why? Somebody tell me why. 
Yeah, but why, why do we believe it? Why do we, why do we say it? We know he's coming back. Why? Because it's written in his word and he said he would. Amen? God said it and we know he will do it. Why? Because God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind and repent. Amen? That's what it means to believe in the inerrancy of scripture. Amen? All right, let's go to the New Testament, okay? Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse, I believe it's verse 35. One more page, Kevin. One more page. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Who's talking right here? Somebody tell me. It's Christ, amen? He's telling you point blank everything I've said. And what did he say? How many of y'all know what all he said? He said everything in scripture. It's all God breathed. Jesus is God. It's all God breathed. It's all his word. Amen? We understand his word will never pass away. Go with me, if you will, to 2 Peter. If you don't know where 2 Peter is, it's right after 1 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is the verse that MacArthur pointed out in his defense of the inerrancy of scripture verse 20 and 21 of first peter or second peter chapter 1 but know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation i want everybody that ever reads the bible and and prophecies in the bible to read this verse there is no prophecy in the Bible that is just up for your own personal interpretation. There is a meaning, there is an actual interpretation that is supposed to be gathered from this prophecy. And it ain't yours, it's the author's intent. Who's the author? God. Amen? For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that's the exact thing that happened when we got the canon of Scripture. Men were moved by God to write and they wrote. Amen? Now watch this. Go with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. Hmm. And this is the one that I want to stand on for the inerrancy of Scripture. Romans 3, verse 4. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, what you, uh, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let God be true. And every man be found a liar. 
Why? Because God's word is true. Every bit of it. Amen. Now you go, well, you just don't know that that's what they're talking about. Hmm. Really? He's arguing with the Jews. He says, what advantage is it has the Jew or what is it of benefit of circumcision? Great is every great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the what? The oracles of God. In other words, the words of God. That's what it benefits being a Jew because they were entrusted with the very word of God. And when he says, let God be true and every man be a liar, what he's saying is, I built this case on the word of God. Not on my opinion, but the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. This is the one I really, really like, too. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, both the joints and the marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to his eyes, to the eyes of him whom we have to do. With whom we have to do. Now watch this. What is he talking about? Why does he say the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing the soul and spirit, bone and mountain, thoughts and the intents of the heart? Why? Because all of my stuff gets laid bare by the word of God. The word of God lays me bare before God. Why? Because when I think it's okay to lust and to sin and to carouse, the Bible says that every person who lusts and sin and carouses will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, just in case you want to know where it's at. The word of God is our rule for life and godliness in all areas of our life. But the problem is modern day Christianity, so-called Christianity, and I'm using air quotes, okay? Because it's, I find it hard to believe that you can doubt God's word on these issues and really, really, really believe in Christ. I'm not saying it's impossible. I said, I doubt it. Isn't that what I said? I said, I doubt it. I'm not saying there ain't an exception to the rule. I'm not saying I don't know where. I'm, I'm not saying I know where people are in their walk, uh, in their sanctification. I don't know. But I know what the word of God says about these issues. Amen? Now, the modern-day Christians or the modern-day liberal theologians are challenging 
the authority of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture and the inerrancy of God's Word on all manner of subjects, but I picked four of them tonight to talk about. Number one, gender. Number two, marriage. Number two, the order in the home and in the church. And sexuality. Modern liberal theologians are challenging all of these things, and they act as if these, these constructs don't exist in God's Word, that they're not laid out where we can see them. But I assure you, one, one place in Scripture will address every one of these. One. And I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. So like I said, I don't really want to teach in Genesis, but I'm going to, and I'm going backwards. Okay? Not backwards. We're going backwards. Okay? We're going backwards. <clears throat> verse 4, this is the account. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that God, the Lord God, made the heavens and the earth. Now, no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, or in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But in the midst, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now watch this. I want to submit to you Paul's reasoning in the New Testament why man is the head of his wife and that why women can't be elders in the church is based off of this verse. And when he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, what is his answer? He said, because man was made first. It didn't have anything to do with the fall. It didn't have anything to do with the curse after the fall. It had to do with the order of creation. Man was made first. So why is the man the head of the wife? Because man was made first first. Why is the man the head in the church? Because man was made first. This is Paul's reasoning. We're going to go look at that in a moment. But watch this. Not only that, let's keep watching because Paul gives another reasoning in 1 Timothy 2 and we're going to get to that, okay? But that's in chapter 3 and I'm not reading all of it today. <laughs> So God forms man from the dust of the earth in chapter uh, 2, verse 7. And if you fast forward to chapter, 15, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And the Lord took man and put him in the midst of the Garden of Eden. Now Eve is not created yet, okay? So God has now built the Garden of Eden. He's grown the Garden of Eden, and now he's placing man in it, okay? So he's given man... A job, a purpose, and then he's given man a law. Okay? 
Then the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Now this he is speaking directly to Adam. Eve is not made yet. Jump to verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone, and I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, I want you to understand the other reasoning that Paul has in uh, 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 Ephesians. He says, because woman was made for man, not man for woman. Not from, for Woman is made for man. Not because she's inferior. She's not inferior. There's no hierarchy. There's no less importance. We can read in uh, Genesis 1. If you flip back to Genesis 1, you can see in verse 27, And God created man in his own image, and in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So we know that both people are created in God's image, in God's likeness, endowed with the understanding that they are unique creatures that deserve life and respect. Amen? So what we're teaching when we teach that man is the head of the house is not that man is better, but God has an order. And we see it in Genesis. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Fast forward. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and he slept. And he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. Now, first of all, we have the order of creation, man, then woman, man, while before Eve ever existed, man got a job, man got responsibility, and man got the law. You need anything? Don't touch that tree. Eve did not hear this command directly from God. That's why Eve is not responsible for the fall of human, humanity. That's why in, in uh, uh, Romans 5, Paul blames Adam. He says, by one man, sin entered into the world, and by one man, life. Amen? They're talking about Adam and Christ. Why Adam? Because Adam is the one that got the command directly from God. Therefore, it was Adam's responsibility not only to tend the garden, but to keep the law. And then we have, starting at verse 23, the very first marriage and what Jesus considers marriage. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then verse 24 is where we get our marriage understanding. 
For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That verse right there is what Jesus quantifies as marriage. Go with me to Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to show you that this is Jesus' understanding of marriage. Okay? Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 and verse, we're going to start at verse 1. When Jesus finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now watch this. Jesus is answering a question about divorce, but he's going to give you his understanding of marriage. He does this before he answers the question about divorce. Why? Because before we talk about divorce, you should understand what marriage is. Amen? This is the point. You need to know what marriage is. He answered and said to them, Have you not read? Oops, the sufficiency of scriptures creeping in even in Jesus' talk, isn't it? He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning said, uh, He who created them from the beginning made them what? Male and female. So for anybody to say, hey, there's more than two genders. Nope. The Bible says he created them male and female. And said, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Where? And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Amen? Jesus' is understanding of marriage goes back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That's marriage between one man and one woman. Not a woman and a woman, not a man and a man. A man and a woman. That's marriage. Anything outside of that, God calls an abomination, a sin. Sex outside of the confines of marriage. What's that called? Fornication. Fornication is sex outside of the bonds of marriage. And what is marriage? Marriage is a man and a woman who come together and become one flesh. Amen? So here in Genesis, I want you to notice that we have addressed the order of creation, the order that Paul lays out in Ephesians and in Timothy and in uh, 1 Corinthians. This is the order that Paul lays out in Scripture in Titus. Come on. Man created first. Then woman, this is the reasoning for man being the head of the home. This is the reasoning for the, the man being the head or the elder or the overseer of the church. We've also identified the gender debate because God created them what? Male and female. 
created he them. Amen. When you understand that there are men and women, even a nine-year-old understands this. I read an article where a 12-year-old went to her school board and was incensed that they were trying to push this agenda onto her. And she, she looked at them and said, everybody knows what a boy is. Everybody. Even you know what a boy is. It's ridiculous that we have to deny reality to capitulate to sin, to capitulate to people's depraved, desperately wicked hearts that devise all manner of evil continuously. That's scripture too, by the way. Genesis 6. We've also identified sexuality in this verse of Genesis. Because anything outside of one man leaving his father and mother and cleaving unto his wife is absolutely sin. That's why it's spelled out that way in the rest of the Bible. Amen? Fornication. Men sleeping with other women while he's married. Adultery. Sin. Men sleeping with women before they get married. Fornication. It's a, it's a sin. Men sleeping with men. It's a sin. It's called homosexuality. This is addressed in Scripture. It's addressed very, 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 very explicitly. I want to go to about a month ago where we preached on the headship of men in the home. And I want to just go to a couple verses. I'm not going to go to them all. But go to uh, the ones that I, I probably want to go to are... Let's go to Ephesians 5. We're going to go there very quickly. We're not, going to, we're not going to spend a lot of time exegeting these passages because we've been here. We went over it. I just want to read it to re-clarify it in your mind that this is Scripture and not what I'm making up for you to believe. Amen? Can I get amen? Amen. All right. Now watch this. Wives... Be subject to your own husbands. This is verse 22 of chapter 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife. As Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ. So also wives ought to be subject. Or be in submission. To their own husbands in everything. Husbands love your wives. As Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the water of the washing with the word. Amen. Go with me to Colossians. If you don't know where Colossians is, it's right after Philippians. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1, I therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking those things which are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above and not on things that are on this earth. Right? Know what it says? Am I in the wrong spot? No. Oh, I'm supposed to be in 18, not verse 1. 
I'm like, that don't make no sense. Okay, here we go. Family relationships. That's, that's what we want. Verse 18. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives. What does it say? Wives. Subject yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wife and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obeyed, obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Again, we see the same phrasing of submission of the wife to the husband and the husband loving the wife. Amen. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, or 1 Peter chapter 3, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 3. So now we have two verses from Paul, right? We're about to have a verse from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 1. This is the one I want to start at, verse 1. In the same way, what? In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry, but putting and putting on dresses, but let it be hidden in the hidden person of the heart with imperishable qualities of gentleness, quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in the former way, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live your uh, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now here we see again that Peter, this is Peter, not Paul. Peter is saying, wives submit to your husbands, husbands. Love your wife, live peaceable with her. She's a weaker vessel. And not only that, he says to honor her, right? Not just love her, but honor her. Amen? Titus chapter 2. So you'll flip back in front of Hebrews to Titus chapter 2. We're going to get a few more words from Paul here. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 2. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior and not malicious gossips, not, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity of doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about you. Here again, we have young women and young men who are wives and husbands. Also, we have 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to flip there real fast. 1 Corinthians 11.
verse 2 through 16. I don't know that I want to read all this. This is the same chapter that he says to be imitators of God as dearly loved children, right? Be imitators of me just as I also imitate Christ. Now watch this. <clears throat> They're talking about head coverings. Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions that I have just delivered unto you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And that the man is the head of the woman. And that God is and that God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying and prophesying disgraces his head, who is Christ. But the, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaven. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also uh uh, if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her head shaved, uh, cover her head. For a man ought to not have his head covered, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. Now, I want you to know I could keep reading this, and it will just continue to reiterate what we're saying. But the point of all this is not just the, that, that men are superior and women are inferior. That's not it. It's not even talking about men being better, men being uh, more, uh, having more authority. It is simply telling you the order of creation and why it's important. Because God created man first and created woman for man. Amen? But once we destroy this, and this is where I'm going with this. Once we destroy men and women and their roles at home and at church, then we can't have fathers that are good to look up to because what's a father? You know, we don't recognize gender. We don't recognize men. We don't recognize that men are the head. We don't recognize that women are meant for men and meant to uh, be, be a complement, a, a, a help, a, a suitable helper for a man. If we, if we take all of that away and there's no distinction, there's no difference then I, as a pastor, cannot look at somebody who's in a homosexual relationship and say, that's wrong, I can't, if there's no gender, if there's no roles, if there's no uh, men and women. I can't, right? But if it is true, and if that's what God's Word is saying, and I think we covered the fact that it's what it's saying, men are to be husbands and fathers. Women are to be wives and mothers. Now, here's a, here's a great understanding that I want you to get. Women cannot be husbands or fathers. If you put women, if you put six women in this room and locked them in here for 45 years, there would never be a baby born in this room. If you put a group of men in this room 
and locked the door. Six men, put them in here for 45 years, not one baby would ever be born. The realities that men and women are different, not better than one another, different. Different roles, different assignments is absolutely spelled out in Scripture. And it's for our good. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to finish that real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And then we're going to go to the second half of this, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 11. chapter 2 starting at verse 11 a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness but do not allow I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet for Adam who was first created and then Eve I want you to notice why he says that women cannot teach or exercise authority over a man it's not because Man got this curse on him after the fall. It is not said that. It said because man was made first. Amen? And then Eve. Adam was not deceived. He wasn't. But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now why, why does it say Eve fell into transgression? And she was deceived. Well, she was deceived first. She's the one that the serpent talked to her. The serpent was smart. He bypassed the head, the man, and talked directly to the woman. Bypassed the head. The one who got the law directly from God. The one who was made first and put in the garden, put over the garden. The serpent bypassed him. Why? Because of his authority. Because of his understanding. Because of his position, he talked to Eve and deceived her. Paul's reasoning is not the fall. Paul's reasoning is that man was made first. And yes, Eve was deceived. That's the only part about the fall that has anything to do with the reasoning of Paul for why women should not be elders in the church. It doesn't say women can't teach or preach other women or children or even uh, small group studies. Just to say that. It says they cannot be elders, overseers, cannot exercise authority in that position. Now why does all this matter? Because the fundamental principles that God's laid out in his word for marriage, the family, men, and women are absolutely what's being undermined when we talk about the inerrancy of scripture and what scripture says about men and women what we have already read we've read these things we know that they are in scripture that they are worded exactly like I'm saying them they're not being twisted not pulled out of context by me they're talking about these specific subjects and the reality that 
the, the modern day loosey-goosey uh, liberal translators and liberal theologians who are trying to change the Bible, what they're doing is they're tearing at the very fabric of humanity being created in God's image, male and female, being, cre being created for each other, for the procreation of the species, for the propagation of God's plan in the order that God made it and the way that God made it. And they all of them tear at the sufficiency of Scripture to tell us these things. Finally, I wanted to just bring up sexuality because sexuality is absolutely part of the gender debate nowadays. And, and they act like the, 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 the sexuality is just not mentioned in the Bible, that homosexuality isn't mentioned in the Bible. But the reality is, in Genesis 9, God burns down two whole cities for the sin of sodomy. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? So what's going on? The sin of sodomy. What is sodomy? That's when a man has sex with a man. There ain't no other orifices to go in. It's called sodomy. Leviticus 18.22 says if a man lies with a man as he lies with a woman, it's an abomination to God. And that person should be taken out in stone according to Leviticus 20 and verse 13. Now everybody goes, oh, that's in the Old Testament. Finally, let's go to the New Testament. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to show you that the Bible talks about homosexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is in plain English. I'm not going to read anything else into it. I'm going to read it exactly the way it says it. And I'm going to let you see that the Bible addresses this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now this is saying these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul says this, look, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And we know elsewhere that Paul says, let the sinner stop sinning. Let the thief stop stealing and work with his own hands. So the same rule applies to the homosexual that applies to the murderer. A murderer who comes to God cannot continue to keep murdering. He must stop murdering. Amen? An adulterer who comes to Christ must quit being an adulterer. Amen? A fornicator who comes to Christ, anyone who, who comes to Christ and has lived their life having sex outside of the bonds of marriage, when they come to Christ, that behavior has to stop. It's called repentance. 
And when people come to Christ who are homosexuals, they cannot continue being homosexuals. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I know I'm preaching a little long for a Wednesday night. And I know people at home probably already tuned me out. But the reality of what I'm talking about is the inerrancy of Scripture and how Scripture addresses these four topics wholly and completely. Amen? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Hmm. But rather, oh, I'm, I'm in chapter 2, my bad. Verse 10. And actually, let's go to verse 10. Eight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinner, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and, homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Did you get that? Murderers. Those who kill their father and mothers. Murderers. Immoral men. Homosexuals. Kidnappers. Liars. Perjurers. Are against. They're contrary to sound doctrine. Being a homosexual and claiming to be a Christian is contrary to. To sound doctrine. It's contrary to the word of God. I have more verses on this. I am not trying to beat these sins into the ground. What I'm trying to show you is that the Bible clearly, unequivocally addresses gender. It clearly, unequivocally addresses marriage. It clearly unequivocally addresses the roles, the order of marriage, the order in the church. It clearly addresses sexuality and sexual sin. It absolutely addresses them. The only way, the only way that you can believe these things are okay is by disbelieving, disbelieving approving the doctrine of inerrancy. Either scripture is true, holy, and acceptable, God-breathed and useful for everything. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Amen? We love training. We even love teaching. But we sure don't like correction. And we sure don't like rebuking. Amen? But that's the part of God's word that lays us bare before him. Amen. That's the part of the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word of God that lays us bare before him. Where we have no excuse but to repent, turn to Christ. So my call tonight is not to bash these sins. It's not even to bash the sinners. My call tonight is that God's word explicitly inerrantly, infallibly, sufficiently addresses these issues. And the church has got to get in line with God's word and what God's word teaches and stop teaching anything else other than God's word. 
Because Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 that if I or an angel of God preach any other gospel than the one that you have received, let him be accursed. The one you have received from us, who's he talking about? Peter himself. Christ. God. Amen. If you receive any other gospel, any other teaching, Amen. The sufficiency, inerrancy of Scripture is at stake in these arguments. It's at stake in the argument of race, where people think that race is built on uh, on on your on your uh, pigment. All white people are racist. No, all people are sinners. Therefore, not sin. The sin of racism is not only bound up in melanin-free skin. Amen? We need to get back to the basics. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would help us. Help us to see your word clearly for what it says. Lord, help us not to superimpose our own ideas into scripture help us not to to create doctrines that are not there god but help us to read what the bible says clearly plainly and let us live our life by it lord your word is all sufficient it is inerrant infallible and it is our rule of faith and practice in this life Lord Jesus, you said that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Lord, you said in your psalm, he that, he, he that uh, meditates on your word day and night shall be like a tree planted by rivers of living water. Whose leaf does not wither, who bears fruit in his season, and whatever he does prospers. Because his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law does he meditate day and night. Lord, your, the, the word of God says that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And this world and your church is walking in utter darkness right now. Because they will not believe your word is enough. They will not believe that your word is sufficient, inerrant, infallible, and useful for all things. Train us, equip us, rebuke us, and correct us with your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to bow our knee, to bow our hearts, because we know that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.